Let me ask you a question. When you were growing up, did you want to be a superhero? Put your hand up if you wanted to be a superhero. I absolutely loved, I know there's more of you, don't be shy. Well done, keep your hand up, that's good. Uh, I loved, I loved the uh, movies of Superman. I was really addicted. You don't have to, you put it. Um, I loved the idea of, um, of Superman. I absolutely immersed myself in those movies. They really gave me dreams of the ability to fly, and I was working out every single day to see if I could genuinely bend metal with my bare hands. I was so excited. I was absolutely in love with the idea of being a superhero. That really was something I was admiring and wanted to be. Maybe superheroes weren't your thing. Maybe you, were, uh, you always dreamed of being a musician. You, always, you looked at the rock stars in the world and you thought, I want to be like that one day. You know, maybe uh, you, know, you, you were just looked at these guys and you aspired to who they were and what they did. You know, maybe uh, you know, your absolute dream Christmas present this year would be a poster of Sam Lane on your bedroom wall. Is that, is that speaking to some of you? Maybe. Maybe rock stars not the thing. Maybe you, your bedroom walls when you were younger were filled with movie stars. Whatever it is, you know, we have this inner desire, this absolute uh, wonder of looking at people that we admire. We know they're better than us. We want to become like them. They inspire us. They, they give us something to aspire to. It's not that different in Christian circles as well. You know, we look at certain people and we, we see them doing things. We see them with a courage, a confidence. You know, see them healing the sick and praying for people and prophesying without even breaking into a sweat. And we look at them with inspiration, aspiration. But the problem is, is we always get to the point where we go, I'd love to be like that. They look like they do it so easily. It's probably never going to happen, so I should probably not even try and we get to that point where we give up trying. You know, this is the interesting thing about the, the man of God, the woman of God that we see in the church, that sometimes when they come to inspire us, they actually put us off. It's a really bizarre concept. But you, um, but, you know, one of the amazing things about Vineyard, when John Wimber, who's the founder of Vineyard, he, it, when he founded it, one of the massive differences for him was this phrase that he really, uh, really propelled, which was, everyone gets to play. You see, for him, he could do the stuff. He could pray for the sick. He could heal and deliver people from demons. But he knew, he had this idea, he had this realization that it wasn't just him, that the whole church could do it. And so he really you know, pushed that. And what would happen is he would stand up and preach, and then he would say, okay, ministry time's going to happen. So off you, ministry team, off you go and do it. Not just on stage, he went out back sometimes. And uh, let the ministry do the amazing things that they dreamed of doing. He really believed that to the core. The aspiration became a reality for many. And this was the confidence, this was the wonder that he had for it. There was a, a great verse that he, um, he'd often preach on, which was um, Ephesians 4. That we, he was here, that leaders were here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That has always been a core part of who we are at Vineyard, that everyone gets to play and that everyone gets to invest in other people and raise them up. And that's what we still dream, we still believe, we still see and do, even this day. There was another verse. Um, well, actually, let me talk about this. The man of God. 
Let me just talk about that for a second. You know, the man of God, if you read the Old Testament, there was such a thing as the man of God. And what it was, it was um, before Jesus died on the cross and removed sin from the world, what would happen is he would choose, he would select an individual, a prophet, a priest, or whoever, to be the mouthpiece of God. And that person would be chosen, selected, they would be given a task, and they would go into the world and speak on behalf of God. They would be his servant. They would be his, his chosen person. But then Christ dealt with sin on the cross. He paid the ultimate price. He released that and released the people in it. And the world was set free to then, as it says in Hebrews 4, to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. We are now able to approach God. We're able to speak to God, to hear from God. We suddenly all became a man of God and a woman of God. Every single person in this room has been called, has been chosen to be a man or a woman of God. In fact, why don't you do that? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say to them, look at them in the eyes and say, you are a man or a woman of God, depending on the gender. Get that right. You are a man of God. You're a woman of God. And now turn to that person and say, I, I am a man of God. I am a woman of God. See, this is a great truth that we, we sometimes deny in our own lives. There's this great verse in uh, 1 Peter 2.9, which argues this, and John Wimber argued this all the time and propelled this and really tried to communicate this. It says this, but you, the church, you individuals, you as collective, you are the chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You say, in fact, the Old Testament selected chosen prophets and priests, they would be jealous of us today. You see, they were called to serve God. They were selected to serve God, to be his servants. But you were chosen not to be his servant, to be his son or his daughter. Your status, your role is so much greater than it was in the Old Testament. And this is what it is. This is the great, generous benefit and wonder an absolute desire of God to choose us as a son and daughter and to choose us uh, individually and personally. After that, in the verse, it says this, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. You know, as wonderful as it is to be chosen, as wonderful as it is to be called a son or a daughter, actually, a lot of people seem to stop there when there's so much more to come from that. The royal priesthood is one of the greatest things that if we get our head around, it releases in us the dreams and aspirations that we long to see realized. As wonderful as that is, we need to step into what that looks like. We're a chosen people, a holy nation. We're a royal priesthood. If you think about this, this is, if you understand what a royal and a priesthood is, you realize this is an absolute oxymoron. It's kind of like the term, you know, act naturally. Or Microsoft Works. I love that phrase. Or American History. That's a good one as well. You see, this is an oxymoron. Now, let me explain this. In the Old Testament, there are priests and there were kings. Two very different roles. You see, you had the priest. And the priest, what they would do is they would stand in the temple. And all the people, all the people of God would, would stand behind them. They would have their backs to the people. And what they would do is they would stand before the divine, before God, and they would advocate on their behalf. It's not them being rude. They're standing bef uh, before the people on behalf of the people. 
They would say, I'm here, I know the needs, I know the wants, I know the desires, the dreams, the hurts of my people or your people, and I'm standing before you to ask that you would give what these people need. And they would turn around and give it. That's a priest. See, a king is slightly different. A king stands facing his people, and he would stand with a sword, and he would stand with great power, and he would say this, this is the law of the nation. If you obey this, all will go well. If you don't, you'll die. And do you see the difference? That's a massive difference, isn't it? Someone who stands and intercedes and advocates and someone who says, this is the way you live and if you don't do that, it's over. And then Jesus came. And Jesus came and he says, I am the king. I am the king. But a different kind of king than you're used to. A different king than you're expecting. Not one that's come with my power and my authority to judge you, but one, one that's come to name you, to call you, to advocate on you. This, he says, I'm the royal priest. I'm the priestly king. My royal power is not here to, to punish you. My royal power is here to serve you as my people. Such is my love, such is my desire, such is my knowledge of your wants and your needs. I have come to serve you. In fact, it says in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, we're chosen not as servants, but as sons, to do the work of our Father, to heal the sick, to deliver them, our people from evil, to restore lives, and to be a superhero. Genuinely. So it's good to want to be a superhero. To be the man of God, to be a woman of God, exactly like every single person in this room is. You see, we were chosen to be a royal priesthood, to intercede and advocate on behalf of those around us like a priest. And we also are called to be a king, to stand before people and lead them and serve them and give our lives to them. When I think about this, when I was preparing the talk, and I, I was, as I often do, like you do when you're doing an essay, getting easily distracted and going on Facebook, and I, uh, I came across this person that just reminded me of how wonderful it is to see the royal priesthood at work. You see, many years ago, we were doing Christmas wrapping in town, where we literally just wrap people's presents for free. And it is a wonderful gift. And one of our team was taking a bit of a break, and they were walking around through the Maltings, and they happened across this young girl this young girl from Africa who's heavily pregnant, who looked entirely lost and entirely devoid of hope. And they, they took her into a coffee shop and they sat with her and they offered to buy her lunch and they just sat and listened to her story. And her story involved this, that she had come across to the UK, that she had met a guy and she had got pregnant. But then in doing so, you know, she, uh, she was kicked out of her home by her parents. The same parents that actually illegally brought her over on the wrong visa and kept her here. So she couldn't go for help, she couldn't ask people for support because she was an illegal immigrant and if she got found out, she'd have been sent home. As this person is listening to the story, their heart is breaking for them. And they realize they have to do something about it. Not alone, they gather other people and they look to what they can do and they advocate for this woman. And they seek to, they, they find someone with a home and a spare room and they give her somewhere to live. They advocated to the government and actually got, gave her and got her citizenship so she could remain and be cared for and put in the system. 
They realized, you know, as they, as they led her to Jesus and they gave her a hope and a, and a purpose, she started to feel loved again. In doing so, they met her boyfriend as well. And, and bless him, he basically was just a young man who was obviously deeply in love with this woman, but also caught up in, in childish things. He was doing drugs. He was easily distracted. And suddenly the realization that he was going to be a father overwhelmed him. And so people gathered around him and they loved him and they supported him and also led him to Jesus. And now this couple, as they grew together, as they got their lives in order, as they got their own home, as they eventually got married and they got their lives together and they started working, it was just a wonderful story of redemption. And I found this person on Facebook recently advertising that they were just about to have their third child. And isn't that amazing? That's the royal priesthood at work. That's the royal priesthood at work. You see, the thing is, is that wouldn't have been possible for just one person. See, the third thing to say about a royal priesthood is it's a priesthood rather than priests. I think that's why God did it on purpose. He called us a priesthood, not priests. We're not individuals. We have to do this together. We're meant to function and grow as one. You see, there are people today that look at church and see it as an optional social extra. You see, the thing is, is you can download some amazing podcasts from amazing, amazing preachers all over the world. You can go onto Spotify and you can listen to the finest worship available. You can do that easily at the click of a button. So coming to church with, you know, sometimes it's a bit messy, sometimes it's a bit burdensome. You know, for some people, they just see it as an option. When they're free, they may pop along. But actually, they can get everything they want elsewhere. You know, there's nothing wrong with listening to podcasts or going to listen to worship music on Spotify. But what about when something happens, when something goes wrong as it inevitably does? Who do you know well enough that comes and prays with you and walks with you and supports you and loves you through that time? Where do you go when you have questions that need answers, doubts that need explanation? People around you who can explain things that you haven't quite yet come to realize because you will have them. And who will you know, support you when the marriage starts to get a bit rocky? And we wonder where the help is. Well, the most important question I think of all is what do you do when you have no Wi-Fi? <laughs> it's a tough question. It's one of the burdening questions I have in my life. You know, I recently read a survey that said as a society that we are the most connected. You know, most of us, if you're on Facebook, you have hundreds of friends, hundreds of people that you read about their lives, you can tell them about your lives. LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, all those things. You're alive, you're connected. But you know, this survey also said is in addition to being one of the most connected societies ever, we're also one of the most lonely societies ever. You see, we can connect with people online, but we don't truly connect with them in person. We can know a lot of people, but we don't really know them intimately. And this is what the church is. It's about drawing people together. You see, this isn't a new issue. This isn't a new situation. In Hebrews 10, 25, it says this, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing so, but let us encourage one another. You see, there's a great analogy of, uh, of the coals in a fire. Maybe you had a barbecue over the, over the summer. It's gone now. It'll come back one day. But, um, but you maybe you had a barbecue over the summer and you looked in that barbecue and you saw all those pieces of coal and they were all alight and they were all energized, they were glowing. And then someone comes along with veggie sausages. 
and you wonder where they're going to go. You know, you don't, you don't take a couple of pieces of, of coal out of that and go, we're going to put this over here, and don't worry, that one piece of coal will heat and cook all your veggie sausages. You can't, you can't do that. You know why you can't do that? Because when you take that piece of coal out, what happens to it? It gets cold. It loses its glow. It loses its energy. You see, the thing is, is it's got to be put back for it to regain its energy, to regain its life. Such it is with us as the church. When we're separated, when we're pulled out, when we're put aside and we think we can do something ourselves, we lose the energy. We can say the right things and we can you know, have the right answers and look like we're working, but inside we start to die. We start to lose our glow until we're put back in that place. But it's more than that. You see, you're called a royal priesthood. And whereas royal priests were to advocate, and one of the greatest Calls, one of the greatest gifts of being able to advocate is also to lead people to their God, to introduce people to Jesus. As John Wimber said, to a father, a child, uh, to father a child and not to raise it is deemed uncivilized. But yet to make converts and not plant them into a church is unthinkable. If we do anything to put people off church, to tell people not to come to church, to say they can live without them, we are denying them the opportunity to know the love, the affection, the support, the wonder of being part of a greater family. That is unthinkable. That's one aspect of the priesthood, the royal priesthood. There's another aspect as well. To be a priest, it also means that it's not about, God, about us, but the God that we represent. Carol Wimber, John's wife, who both pioneered and led the, um, the vineyard movement. Carol Wimber said this, it's never been about the great anointed one. Or those who look like they've got it all together. It's always been about God using who he desires, usually the one who's just willing, with the importance of keeping the focus on and about Jesus. See, you could summarize it like this. Rather than focusing on the great men of God, focus on the great God of men. Rather than us focusing on the great God of men, which we like to do, we like to elevate people and say, well, I could never do that. I'll leave it to them. We need to focus on the great God of men. You know, we've had people who have fallen ill in this church and Dennis or whoever's calling them up and checked if they're okay and seen how we can support them. And then a few weeks later, we've had phone calls or we've heard from their friends that they're feeling left out. They're feeling like, you know, because Dennis hasn't or a pastor hasn't visited them, that the church hasn't been to see them. So Dennis gives them a call and we ask him a few questions. We say, well, you know, what about the pastoral team that brought you flowers? Or the Connect group that made you meals? Or the friends you made at church, this church, who visited you and prayed with you and supported you? What about them? What about the royal priesthood? You see, we're the church. We're not a professional service as, as the idea is seeped into the church. What do we mean by that? You see, all too often Christians expect their pastors and their Christian leaders to emulate the professional experts of this world. We don't go to a doctor. To, um, so we expect a doctor when we go to them to treat us. We don't expect them to teach us about medicine and train us to heal other people. When we go to a lawyer, we expect legal advice and counsel. We don't sit there expecting to be taught how to give legal advice and counsel to other people. And here we expect the same thing. We expect pastors and Christian leaders to serve us. We don't expect them to train us to do the work of their ministry. But yet, 
It says it in Ephesians 4. Christ gave himself, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what it's about. Christian leaders in this place are not the answer. They're the the trainers, the equippers to release every single one of us as great men and women of God to go and do the work of the ministry. Not just, you know, do what we do in this church, but do what we do out there in the marketplace, in the workplace, in the schools and education places. That's the real ministry. You see, the biblical model of a pastor is more like a coach, which is why I also always remember and always am in awe of Mrs. Waters. Mrs. Waters, what a woman, what a woman. Who's Mrs. Waters, you probably ask him. Mrs. Waters was one of my school gym teachers. A very short, very Scottish woman. Very loud. She taught basketball, which I find is incredibly amusing. (laughs) I remember her voice way more than her appearance. She would shout things out that would stick in your mind forever. Bend your knees, bend your knees. Okay, okay. Defense, hustle, defense, hustle. These things would ring and ring and ring in your mind all the time. She was incredibly loud. But you know the funny thing about her? She wasn't actually that good at basketball. She wasn't that amazing at playing the sport herself. But you know her shouting, her encouragement, her passion led the girls to go ahead and win the national basketball competition. Isn't that phenomenal? You see, she didn't let any lack of ability or personal or lack of personal victories define her. She cared enough and believed enough in her team that God would use her. You know, last year we went to India on a mission trip. And uh, the funny thing about India is it's very much that system where the pastor, the, whoever's preaching, he is the man of God and it's really about him. You can go to anyone and get prayer, but ultimately you've got to end up at the pastor because he's the one who can pray for you better than anyone else. Well, see, that kind of thing happened if I was preaching then I, I would have this queue of people and, you know, I, I would love praying for people. I'd, I'd continue to pray for them. But, you know, what I was doing compared to what the team were doing was incomparable. You see, people would come up to me and I'd pray for them and maybe their backs would feel a bit better. Maybe they'd come away going, thank you. I feel a little bit more encouraged. But you know, there were people in the team who had hardly ever prayed for the sick. And there was one person, Simon, who later told me that someone came to him with a paralyzed arm. He prayed for her and she slowly gained complete and utter healing and movement back. That's the person you want to be going to. That's not me. That's the person who you should be asking prayer from. You see, it's not about the great men of God. It's about the great God of men. You know, at a time when the church was so heavily persecuted, that was the time when Christianity spread most of all around the world. It wasn't because of the great preachers, the great men of God, the great pastors. Because if they gathered together in large groups, they would just throw up a flare and put a flag and say, come and persecute us. What it was, it was the individuals, the people that worked together as a royal priesthood, that went into the world and they advocated as priests. They led as kings. They were the royal priesthood. As a part of their day jobs, they would heal the sick, deliver people from evil, lead people to Jesus. They were the people that took Christianity around the whole Roman Empire until it became the, the religion of the state. You see, it's more than just healing you can do as a royal priesthood. 
You see, every single person in this room has something to give, has something to offer. Because you can stand like a priest before God of heaven and earth. And you can advocate for other people. And you can stand like a king before, uh, before people, ready to lead them and serve them in the way that God does. You see, as his chosen people, as a royal priesthood, we are called to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the light. You see, this is very similar to our vision as a church, which is to make Christ known. That's what we're about. That's what we do. You see, I, I read this statement recently that churches in the UK provide half of the toddler and parent groups in this country. They have the biggest network of debt counselors, and they will feed at least 100,000 people this year, probably more, because this was a year or so, two years ago. The church is phenomenal. Bill Hybel says the best when he says, the local church is the hope of the world when the local church works right. That is not the preachers and the pastors and the people standing on stage. That's every single person in this room realizing the call that's on their life to be a man or a woman of God, to be in the royal priesthood, to do it together, to encourage one another, to fire one another up, to encourage and invest in one another, and then go out into the world and represent God as priests and as kings. That's the calling in our life. You know, I really believe that God, who calls us his masterpiece, as it says in Ephesians 2.10, has created, uh, who created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. You know, perhaps he has prepared a ministry idea for you, something that you've been thinking about, a need that you've perceived in this church or in this community, that you think, actually, if we could just lead, do something about it, we could lead and reach people and reach the world for Christ. You know, perhaps he's prepared in you a new business venture, one that will redefine the values of your industry. Perhaps he's prepared for you a role in politics or civil service so that you can have influence on the people who make the decisions in this country. Perhaps you're someone who's creative. It's about time that you got around to writing that song or finishing that script because you will reach more people than any single sermon on a Sunday will ever do. Perhaps he is prepared a church for you to lead. You're a church planter and you've been kicking against the idea for a long time because you just think you couldn't do that. Maybe today's the day that you give up denying what is obviously something that he has prepared for you to do. You know, there are so many dreams and calls in this room waiting to be realized if we would first realize that we are men and women of God, that we would realize whose we are before we come about realizing who we are. We belong to God. And he can use us to do mighty things. You see, I believe the church is the training ground for champions. I believe that God wants to do amazing things amongst us. You're surrounded by people with all different life experiences and all skills and talents and experience. There's no better place to be invested in than a place like this. Well, you could ask of many people and many things and they would be able to provide it for you. We are the royal priesthood to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. You know, like Louis did so excellently last week. A great um, sermon, a podcast worth downloading if you've got Wi-Fi. It's, we need a vision. We need to prepare for the things that God has for us. And he has indeed prepared many things for us. Let me attempt to take Louis' talk a step further as we start to close. 
You see, I want to just give us three things. Hopefully, it's practical guidance, practical help that we can go, okay, that thing that God has prepared for us, how do I find that? How do I walk into that? How do I achieve that? How do I live to that potential that God has placed in me? Three things. The first thing is this. God needs to call you. God needs to call you. See, a call is a bit of a disturbance. It's a distraction. A phone call is the same thing. You see, a phone call actually disturbs what you're doing. You have to stop what you're doing. You have to refocus and give it your attention. The call of God will disturb what you're doing. It will pause the movie you're watching. It will stop the song and interrupt the song you're listening to. It will wake you up. It will cause you to pull the car over if you're waiting for it. I remember playing football with a guy um, many years ago. He turned up and he started playing with his phone in his hand. And I was like, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, you know, my wife's you know, expecting a baby any day. I better, better be attentive for it. I was like, maybe you shouldn't be here. Maybe you should be at home. He goes, oh, we've got six kids. I'm used to this. So, okay, fine. <laughs> and then he realized he couldn't play football with a phone in his hand, so he put it down. Anyway, we had a great game. And at the end of it, he thought, oh, I better check my phone. 16 missed calls. Yeah, that was awkward. <laughs> he ran off pretty fast with that. You see, that call is coming. That call is coming. As assured as it is that that baby's going to be born, that call is coming. Will we be ready to receive it? Do you know, one of the great ways to be sure that we're going to receive that call is to make sure that you have a good signal on your phone, a good signal, that you're attentive, that you go to the places where you're most attentive to God, a regular prayer space. As Louis was saying last week, regularly asking and speaking to God and asking him to release and reveal that vision to you. As one of the talks in GLS, talks at GLS Global Leadership Summit next month talks about finding that white space, whether it's three minutes or 30 minutes, just to get by yourself and think. You know, Mark told me, it was memorable when he remembered, he told me a few years ago, he says, we have lost the art of thinking. You see, we sit down and we go, I'm just going to think, and then before we know, we've got the phone in front of us, and we don't even know why we've got it out. We're looking for an app because we've got the phone there. We need to put that away and just think, just ponder, just consider. We need to increase our signal, boost it. And you know there's no better place, I've already mentioned it, the Global Leadership Summit next month. The talks, the stories, the inspiration, there's nothing compared to it. If you haven't already booked your ticket, do so. It's always a sure place to get great reception, not just because the, tele uh, the telephone master is just out there, but because it is absolutely inspirational. It radically changes what you believe is possible in this world. That's the first thing. God will call. The second thing is this. Test the call. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Gideon was right to test God? Do you think Gideon was right to test God. Put your hands up if you think that's a yes. Put your hands up if you think it's a no. Put your hands up if you think it's that kind of generic Christian answer, which is, well, he wasn't supposed to, but God is gracious and he looked after him. You see, I want to propose something to you today. I want to propose that I think it was right for Gideon to test God. See, I think it was right for Gideon to test God. I mean, you, you wonder how that could be, because surely you know, Jesus said, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But I think it was right for Gideon to test God. You see, God came to him when everything looked hopeless. He revealed himself and he said, Gideon, I'm going to use you to change the world. I'm going to use you to do something beyond your own abilities and beyond your own comprehension, beyond your own dream. 
I'm going to use you to do something so amazing, so phenomenal, it's going to be remembered for the rest of history. Was Gideon dreaming it? Was he just hoping? Was he just a, a man with ego and aspirations? Was he a man who really thought this might be God speaking to him? And that's why it was good that he tested God. That's the key. See, he knew that God was good. He knew that God was kind. He knew that God was redemptive. But he didn't know if he was the person that God was going to use. You see, we don't test if God is good. We test if this good is of God. We don't test if God is good because we know he's good. We trust him. We follow him. We submit and surrender our lives to him. We don't need to test that. And if we test that, then that's, that's a different form of testing. That's not so good. But we test if that good, that dream, that hope, that desire that's planted within you, if that is of God. There's a passage in Isaiah 7, I haven't got it on the screen, where God actually comes to King Ahaz and says, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz humbly replies, no, 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 I can't do that, God. And God goes, what are you doing? Oh, I can't have the patience with you. Listen, ask me for a sign. I want to give you a sign because what I want to do is so amazing, so vast that you need to be sure it's me. We don't test if God is good. We test if this good is God. How do you do that? You ask for a sign, for confirmation, that an opportunity would present itself, that a resource that's absolutely essential to what God is asking you to do comes your way. You know, one of the great things is that if other people share that hope, share that vision, share that dream, make themselves known to you, you bump into them, you meet them, you realize it's not just you. You've got the team. And then once you have that confirmation, then without arrogance, you come to those who you're walking with, royal priesthood, to leaders, to people in your connect group, to whoever knows you and will be honest and prayerful with you. You get confirmation in the spirit, and then you get confirmation in the body. That's how it's supposed to work. And if you don't, you're in danger of being deceived. You're in danger of thinking it's you know, it could be something else. It could be a jealousy that other people are doing things and you want to join in. But you're called to do something. Test that that good is of God. And the third thing is to try. Try before you buy. You see, while waiting for the call, we should be trying new things. Ministry work, charity work, helping whoever or whatever is in front of you. You see, the problem is, is we, we think that's a good thing, but then we hit two traps. The first one is this idea of passivity. You see, what happens is we kind of go, well, I could do a number of things around the church, or I could do a number of things in the community, but you know, you know, no one's really asked me to do it. Unless a church leader or someone with authority comes and asks me and invites me to do something, then, then maybe it's not me. See, that's passivity. That's being passive. That's not helpful. And the thing is, is it wouldn't be any good if a leader comes to you and asks you to do anything anyway. Because what would happen is when it gets difficult, if you're you know, breaking new ground, if you're doing something, it's going to cost you and it's going to be difficult. And if at that moment you think you're doing this because someone told you to do it, you're going to blame them for putting you in the situation. But if God called you into that situation, then you've got to, you're in front of a God and you say, God, you put me here. Give me the resources to do this. That's one trap we can fall into is passivity. We need to be searching God. The other trap we can fall into is this thing called gift cop-out. You see, God has given us many gifts. If you look in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, a number of different chapters in the Bible, it talks about a number of gifts. 
And you may not think that every single one of those gifts is your gift, but every single one of those gifts is a duty. Let me give you an example. You may not feel you have the gift to evangelize, but you're called to evangelize and I'm the same. You may not have the gift of generous giving. It's just a joyful thing for you to give several hundred pounds to people. It doesn't matter. You still have the gift. You still have the duty of giving. You may not have the gift of hospitality, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't reach out to people who are needing a place to belong, a home to be. We don't cop out of things because we don't think they're our gift. We step into them. Until we receive that call, we step into trying new things, continually trying new things, because you never know along the way that God might reveal what is actually calling you to. You see, a great example of this is um, we, uh, me and Tara, before we were married, we, we still argued, but we, still, we went to this thing called Street Angels. And Street Angels was in, uh, in Watford where people would walk around the streets from 10 o'clock at night till 4 o'clock in the morning. And the idea was that you would go up to people, you would talk to them, you would help them if they were you know, about to fall in the Watford pond or they were heavily drunk and couldn't make it to a taxi. You know, some people came out of clubs very emotional and you could talk with them, you could pray with them and some people you could even lead to Jesus. And so we would do this most Friday nights. We would come out into the streets of Watford and one day we were out together, just me and Tara walking around and I saw a homeless guy and I thought, well, let's go and speak to him. And so we approached the guy and, and he noticed our jackets and he said, well, what's street angel? So I told him we're here to, to help people and uh, you know, talk to them about Jesus. And he said, well, why would you do that? And so I said, well, um, uh, well, see, Jesus loves you. And, he, 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 um, and before I could even finish, he said, oh, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. I was like, way to go for evangelism. And then he turned to Tara and he said, do you know what he's talking about? And she looked at him with a kind, gentle look, but an honest, sincere one, and says, do you like your life? And he goes, well, not really. And he goes, that's why we're here, to tell you about Jesus. So much easier, so simple. It was that day I realized the natural, you know, street evangelism is not my natural gifting. But it doesn't stop me doing it. And I'll tell you what happened as a result of that, is that I realized that even though street evangelism isn't my gift, and there is nothing that fires me up more than wanting to see people come to know Jesus, to know who he is. That's the most thing that inspires me, that fires me up, that energizes me. Nothing does that more. I knew I needed a different way of doing it. And so, you know, we ran the Alpha course here. So I decided that, you know, we would take that up. We would lead that. You know, in the years that we led it, we saw hundreds of people come to know Jesus. Hundreds of people. And then I realized I probably should be a pastor as well. You see, I walked that walk. I tried something that was uncomfortable, unnatural to me. But I discovered where God was calling me and he prepared, that work he prepared for me was suddenly made known to me and revealed to me in doing the thing that I wasn't gifted at. See, we've got to avoid passivity. We've got to step into the unknown. And we've got to avoid gift cop-out. That's not my gift, so I'm not going to do it. We're the royal priesthood. You see, the people around us, they need our advocation. They need us to lead them. They need us to step into that role that we're called to do.